When was the first time that you heard no means no in relation to intimacy between two people? Those three words were pretty much the entire curriculum of consent education that for generations of Australians is what we got for decades. That was it. My guest today was the catalyst for fundamentally changing how consent education works in Australia. In 2021, Chanel Contos posted on Instagram, and I'll quote, have you or a close friend been sexually assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school in Sydney? Close quote. Now, within 24 hours, 204 separate people had responded yes to the question. Within 72 hours, Chanel was doing her first ever live TV interview. That weekend, her mate started a website for Chanel, and over the following three weeks, uh, she collected 6,000 testimonies. She started a petition that would demand consent education in schools. And after 45,000 signatures, a long year of phone calls and many, many meetings, exactly one year from when she first posted on Instagram, the nine education ministers in Australia unanimously agreed and then publicly announced that they would indeed mandate consent education in schools. Chanel Contos is a force of nature. She's a fierce advocate for consent education and the brilliant brain behind the Teach Us Consent campaign. Chanel has been instrumental in raising awareness about sexual assault and consent in Australia. Now, today, we're going to discuss the challenges of navigating relationships in this era of dating apps. We're going to explore the disturbing influence of pornography on our understanding of consent. Chanel highlights the need to extend empathy beyond their immediate circles, teaching both young men and women how that they can prioritise their own desires, but more importantly, saying no and how to say no when it matters most. Chanel's got some really valuable lessons, not just about preventing sexual violence, but also around creating a culture of respect and a culture of understanding. She strongly believes that showing young men that healthy, consensual relationships are something that they should aspire to can ultimately help change the world. Chanel's book is called Consent Laid Bare. It's absolutely stunning. It's out right now. And obviously, there's a very big content warning up the top here because a conversation around consent can't be had without talking about what happens when consent is not there. I'll be amazed if Chanel Contos isn't PM one day. She's a total weapon and an absolute delight to engage with. I hope you enjoy Chanel Contos. Before we hear from her, though, I've got to play some ads. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This type of sexual assault occurs when entitlement outweighs empathy. So entitlement to someone else's body outweighs your empathy towards them as a human. And we only need to flip that up a little bit. We only need to be a little bit more empathetic to people to make it that sexual assault would just be an anomaly and something that would be really strange to do. But the whole point is it becomes normalised because of this entitlement. That is author and activist Chanel Contos. This is Osher Ginsberg, Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday, making it better every episode since 2013, learning something new through a conversation with someone that's been there before. We're here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. There's over 500 interviews to listen to, uh, over 200 monologues, I guess you'd call them. Oh, the 200 episodes on a Friday, because uh, Mondays, Wednesdays are interviews, and Friday's just me. Uh, but yeah, people get as much out of the Friday episodes without a guest as, as they do from the interview ones. So lots and lots to get stuck into. My name's Oshie Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster, TV host. I'm an author. I'm an outdoor, indoor rower rower. I'm a white tip spider asphyxiator. And I'm glad I can be with you today. I, I Look, I never kill spiders, like ever. I just don't want to do it. I trap them and I let them go outside. I've been doing it forever, right? When I lived in Brisbane with my mom, when I was a kid, that's what I did. The other day, Audrey went to change an ink cartridge in our printer and uh, our printer's down on the floor and she pulled the side of the printer open to pull the ink cartridge out. It's not a small printer. And she saw a white tip. Uh, Hello, just kind of waving at them. Wolf was standing in front of her, you know, helping uh, because he was very excited about helping and she grabbed him and just whisked him, plonked him behind her like she was doing around the worlds with a medicine ball at CrossFit. Just, woof, woof, he was back there. I got called in. There's that tone of voice. You go, oh, I'm going, yep, I'm there. I heard that and I ran in and um, she'd opened the thing up, but the, the cunning little bugger had snuck its way inside the machine. So even though we'd pulled the toner cartridges out, we knew there's a white tip spider inside our printer. Not good. Because the printer's right near G's room and, yeah, not a good time. So really the only thing I could do was grab a, like a massive department store bag, one that we'd kept since we got these two big pillows, the ones that stay on the bed that go on the floor and they go on the bed that go on the floor. We never put them, oh, long story. So there's these gigantic plastic bags. And um, so I put the printer inside that very carefully and then I gave it a massive whack of Mortine pro-strength bug death spray and then I sealed up the bag it sat outside in the sun for ages. And then um, last night, just before we all turned in, I went and grabbed it. And uh, sure enough, 
underneath the plastic bag, because uh, it was a big bag, I wasn't able to tie it completely, but underneath the plastic bag there is a dead white tippet had tried to find its way out. And uh, Wolf asked me where it was when I was putting him to bed. And uh, then I had to have that conversation. I had to explain to him that like, I don't ever like to kill animals, especially spiders. But look, if it's between you and Georgia and mum, I'm really sorry, little spider. You're not going to get out of this one. Yeah, it was difficult. <laughs> but, yeah, hey, what are you going to do? You've got to have these chats. Uh, if you're not from Australia, you probably know that there's lots of things that can kill you and hurt you in this country, and white tip spiders are one of those things. So, wasn't a good time. But everybody's okay. Why did I? Anyway, <laughs> look, we have a new Instagram handle. We do. OG Better Than Yesterday. That is what it is. I'll put it in the show notes. It's just OG Better Than Yesterday because there's 400 other Better Than Yesterdays, but OG Better Than Yesterday is what it is. It's exclusively podcast content there. So, everything else I'll put on the regular Instagram, but, you know, having me screen take it off at a gigantic blue bottle uh, or whatever it was uh, the other night on Masked Singer, sitting next to uh, an intense conversation about consent in a you know intimate sexual teen-on-teen situation. Uh, so weird. So that's why I've kind of split them up a bit. We'll see how it goes. Only took me 10 years, but here we are. So I'm still on regular Instagram. That's where that is. But if you just want to know about guests and the conversations we have here, that's where you'll find it. OG, better than yesterday. DM me there if you want to know it. You know, go on, chuck us a follow there because it's always good to have more people follow on. And um, you can DM me there. Also send me a picture of what you're looking at right now. Do it right there. And then, you know, I always love to see what you're doing when you're listening to the show. You're listening to this on the phone. Everyone but like three of you are listening to this on a phone. So that'd be good. Are you good? Are we good? I'm good. You're good? We're good. This is Chanel Contos. Thanks for coming around. Thanks for having me. How are you, How are you going today? Thanks for the book. You're welcome. Oh, God, I'm actually so jet-lagged today. I was literally laying outside the concrete and your house How good is the, the sun? sun? Yeah, I know. It was so good. I was just leg absorbing the sun. Um, but no, I'm so pumped and everything's so fun. You're in London it. at the moment. When did you get back? Uh, a few days ago. Right, yeah. yeah. Coming this way is hard. Yeah, it is. It's always worse this way, isn't it? And I feel like I stay awake when I can't, like, I wake up really early, which is what makes me tired rather yeah. than, or like, I struggle to sleep rather than being like, I'm so tired. Do you want another coffee? Sleep. I make good coffee. No, no, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Are you much. sure? I'm good. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm good. Right. Why did you want to go to uni over there? Um, the course they had was really interesting. I didn't, I couldn't find anything like it in Australia. And I do think the education is like better. I definitely had a better experience learning over there than I did when I studied in Australia. A university experience? Yeah. So I did two degrees in Australia, undergraduate, and then... Just the two? And then I did a, ma- <laughs> <laughs> and then I did a master's in London. <laughs> so it was three in total, but I definitely felt like I had a much better university experience. Even though it was COVID and all online, I still feel like I learned way more and that I was way more engaged with my professors and lecturers than I kind of ever had in Australia. Wow. Yeah. Which is also... I, so I used to teach at uni in Australia. That was like my job before all of this. And... I used to think it was so bad that I used to teach because I was like, I don't know this well enough. And I was like, no wonder I didn't learn anything when I was a student because the people wow. teaching me didn't know anything either. And all those yeah. hex fees that are breaking people's backs for the quality of... Yeah, like the indexing now, like 7%. It's criminal. That's hectic. That is... 7% on like a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfair. Yeah. Particularly most of those decisions are made by people who are sitting in parliament right now that got their education free. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, a whole gen of Australians who didn't like, have to pay for uni. We're here to talk about education, but uh, I, I don't think there's any greater investment you can make Yeah. in, the, in a country. 
Mm. But education, because mm. with education comes inoculation from bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> they have that, like, all the Scandi countries, like, pay people to go to uni. Like, they get scholarships and, like, student living funds. Right. And it just means they're all, I mean, the countries work so well. Well, look, that's because they took that sweet, sweet fossil fuel money and, and put it into their country rather <laughs> like us, which just give it away yeah. and sell it by the buttload. And no, 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 we can't possibly tax those companies. Be terrible. We'll drive them out of the country. I know. Like looking at how much like massive companies paid in taxes like last year and being like, oh, I'm really glad that like me as a 25-year-old paid more tax. Like that's good. It, it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, you want to talk about, you know, disengagement of a population, mm. you know, the idea that. It's, it's just, it's fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember Warren Buffett actually wrote a letter once to his, uh, to, well, then I opened letters to some f- newspaper going, look, Mike, my executive assistant pays more tax than I do, and I'm a billionaire. This is terrible. And he says, I can do it because this, and he actually showed how he did it, but this person can't, and so she can't get ahead. This is a terrible way to be. And it was, it was interesting. Yeah. Because he's a schoolinger. But look, I'm, look, I'm grateful you're here. Um, you obviously you must have gone a fair bit. We live in a part of the. I live in a part of the world. I live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. It's a. Well, it's one of those cities where there's a kind of a. a there's insular enclaves mm-hmm. in the city. All right, this is the same in Brisbane. There's you know, there's a river in the middle of it, so people from one part of it tend not to go to the other part. It's just how it happens, uh, or they drive through it because the Gold Coast on the other side. Um, but <laughs> in, in this particular part of the city. It's a high pedestrian area. You end up knowing a lot of similar people and you would have been very, um, very visual and very uh, prominent when you first kind of went kind of public. When you got to uni and so, you know, as that kind of went on, did that, did that play any role in you wanting to go overseas to go to uni? I think that, so I also grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs and it's a very particular community and I think also the way the schools kind of work and interact with each other means that you could easily know the same people your whole life. Look, it's the same thing in Brisbane. I grew up yeah. in Brisbane and it's the same. Yeah, I literally, there was a 30-year reunion not long ago and I can guarantee there are guys who are still going out or now married to the same women that they met at a dance in 1991 and their kids all go to school. And, like, why would they ever need to know anyone that didn't go to those schools? They played rugby against each other. And, I mean, <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, as in... Yeah, that's definitely fine. But I think um, I think a big reason for me moving overseas was it was COVID as well for context. So I felt very like claustrophobic in Sydney, and I think it was just very limited social interactions that were quite repetitive. But I mean, I wanted to go overseas for so long; it was kind of just like always on my radar that that was yeah. my plan at some point. And then it just happened that by the time I finished my degree. It was mid-COVID and I was like, I need to get out of here. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I did consider not doing it or doing it later, like deferring because I didn't get to learn in person. It was online and obviously like the experience moving overseas was also hindered by COVID. But I was like, nah, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. time to go. you got to go. Well, yeah, at the time we didn't know how long it was going to go on nah. for. So I was like, I'm not going to hold my life. What if this is still going on in six years? Like, got to move on. It's good. And that's a real, that's, I love that because mm. you, it's very much more like, okay, well, how would you, what do we do from here? Like, this is what it is. Mm. Um, the person I used to work with in, um, in music television, she used to say, uh, it was funny because it was about relationships, she, she used to say, it is what it is and it isn't what it isn't. 
Yeah. <laughs> so now what are you going to do? Yeah. And that was it. It was, okay, this is it. It might be, I like that. It's like, could be six more years. I'm mm. not going to not go. So off you pop. And uh, look, I'm, you know, are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm finished now. I've graduated um, that now, but I loved it. And then I still live in London, which I also absolutely love. It is just really fun. I mean, Sydney is so, every time I'm back here, I'm like, why don't I live here? <laughs> like, it's so nice. It's sunny, like the beach, yeah. the lifestyle, seeing all my friends. It makes me so happy, but I just feel as though there's just so many like things to do in London. You can also, I always joke like the best thing about London is Europe. <laughs> like you can so easily leave and get places that are so far from us over here. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you're not telling anyone who's, who's traveled something I don't know already. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I missed all that in my, in my twenties. It was only in my thirties. I lived overseas. I lived in America uh, because I was, I was working, but uh, yeah, exactly right. And you should go. Absolutely. People yeah. have been doing it for decades in Australia, yeah. Yeah, forever and ever and ever. ever. <laughs> um, people came to know you because of the teacher's consent uh, campaign, which, uh, which I do want to talk to you about, obviously, because I remember when that came out, it really, it really struck me because it's certainly not limited to Sydney mm. uh, or even this country. But what's been the um, what's been the effect of that being rolled out? Do you think the effect of the consent education, the effect of the kind of conversation? Oh, the effect of the well. Let's start with the education. Have yeah. you have have you got any kind of metrics that you can look at? So no metrics just yet, except so it only came into play this year. So it's, I guess, going to be quite hard. I think we're going to need a few years or if not a generation to be able to understand if this has had any sort of impact on rates of sexual violence. And it's also going to be very hard because, you know, maybe consent education is improving things, but then maybe other factors are making things worse. And yeah. it's very hard to tell. But there actually is funding being allocated into starting to measure this. So the Human Rights Commission of Australia is doing a survey and we'll start sort of like trying to measure this and figuring out if there can be an impact. But I also think the conversation piece has been really massive. Like so many people have, obviously this isn't, you know, evidence, but so many people have anecdotally told me the change in, you know, family dynamics or like the removal of shame around these sort of things or the willingness to have these conversations or they feel more encouraged to have conversations with their kids much younger because of these things. And I don't think we can dismiss what that will mean for the future of Australia. I mean, uh, yes, it is anecdotal and this isn't going to be in every case, but tell me about the family dynamics piece. So, for example, one that like really struck with me is someone my age telling me that her, her mother and her grandmother were all watching, uh, I think it was a 60 Minutes episode that Teachers Consent and like my work was being platformed in. And in that conversation by seeing how her mum and her grandma reacted to the work I was doing in these sort of conversations in a very like empathetic way the woman my age felt comfortable to tell them that she had been sexually assaulted and a result as a result of that both her mum and her grandma then said that they had both been sexually assaulted and none of them had ever her grandma had never told anyone and her mum had never told either her daughter or her mother wow and then I think the um, woman my age had told people but not her family and it just like alleviated shame and changed the kind of like communal understanding. And it's just like that's three generations of silencing that it was just broken mm. by seeing that having a conversation about this and the confidence that you're not going to be met with a reaction that you don't want or that's going to upset you, what that can do to change, you know, whole families. Yeah. yeah. My, we, we mentioned before we started recording that... Um, we, we both know my, my friend Yumi, who's extraordinary. She 
fucking hell, man, what she went through earlier this year mm. around the publishing of her book was she's nuts, man. It was yeah. fucking nuts, um, particularly because it was so backed by every academic, every law enforcement, every legal mm. you know, edu- expert, every person who's an, just a, a total ninja in child safety and the people which kind of taking it apart and that it's, how, it's not how dare you talk to my kids about a thing. Essentially, how dare you talk to my kids about a thing that I'm not comfortable talking to them about. Now, I'm sure like this sex education, I did sex education in schools when I was 11, all right, mm. so 1986. I'll bet there was a massive fight about that uh, here in Australia, was there much pushback around this sort of stuff coming into schools? There definitely was certain pushback in certain areas, but overwhelmingly, it. I was kind of surprised with how little. I think because the type of consent education that is being taught in schools has been, you know, created by experts and formed by experts, being used off evidence-based, age-appropriate, you know, the whole thing, exactly as you just said, kind of like checked by all these things. And the consequence of not having those conversations is just so wildly devastating that I would, there definitely was certain pushbacks from certain groups, but overall I feel like there was support. And what was actually funny, so when the curriculum did get passed through and it was kind of announced, one of the ministers who I was working closely with on implementing this, um, his advisor sent me a text saying, in the end, it wasn't even controversial, and that's, like, true to cultural change, huh. which I think, you know, when I started advocating for it, if they happened to do it the day after, it would have created this, like, massive backlash. But I think the country was kind of prepped with these conversations about consent and sexual assault and these sort of things. But, yeah, I think, unfortunately, like, obviously I think Yumi's book's great, and I don't know how that media blast just happened around that. But I, because, like, the thing that I kept not being able to wrap my head around with that is your kid's not going to buy the book themselves. Like, no one's... You get to buy them the book. It's an incredible resource. Like, yeah. I don't understand why people are so angry about yeah. this thing that it's not as if, like, a 10-year-old's going to, like, walk into Big W with, like, 20 bucks and say, I'm going to buy this today. So, yeah. The logic behind it is is nuts, but it does lead me onto what I... You know, an, another thing that has changed rapidly since you first started talking about this stuff is that, you know, this is the argument at the time, is, like, what are you talking about your, yeah. your kid has an iPad in their hands. What, what do you think they're saying? And you probably haven't put the parental controls on. Mm. And I can guarantee that you know, if you're not in the room with them, I, I was 11 when I first saw hardcore pornography. Well, that's the average age of first access yeah. in Australia. Eight is too late. Yeah. As, yeah. Ursula Carlson talks about that. Oh Eight, my God. That's what they say in New Zealand. Eight yeah. is too late. Because your kids, I mean, I remember, you know, Audrey, I was still very new in George's life. Uh, I met her when I was 10, when she was, sorry, I met Georgia when she was 10. Mm. Uh, but I, I remember Audrey having a conversation ar- around, you know, look, because you can do anything you want with yeah. your kid's phone, but ultimately you're at the bus stop and the kid next to you goes, hey, check this out. Exactly. And that is often so much of how this content is mm. shared. It's usually that, you know, I always hear it from teachers, like it's the back of the school bus and it's kind of like yeah. in the locker room or it's in these like pr- places where parents aren't patrolling yeah. 24-7 and you can't. Yeah. When has batting things for kids ever fully worked? It's like we need to educate them and support them yeah. in that so that they understand, yeah, what these things mean. Is a lot of the conversations, I mean, they're difficult conversations to have mm. because you don't want to imagine that your child would ever be assaulted and you certainly don't want to imagine that your child would ever assault someone, mm. you know. I mean, let's be honest, like I, I say this quite a bit, but I, 
my, our youngest is four, you know, and if I am down in the park with him and I look at the playground and there's, I don't know, 30 kids, young boys his age, I'm like, 20 years from now, it's going to be one of you. Yeah, more than one. And it's <laughs> fucking horrible because no parent wants their little beautiful son to grow up and be that. I think you know? that's part of the problem around this. I think that a lot of people with daughters very much fear that their daughter will become a statistic in this, but don't fear their son being one. And it, it's illogical because you can do so much to prevent your son from ever perpetrating violence on another, but you can only hope that the boys that your daughter is hanging out with, that their parents have done that sort of thing. So it should actually be a much more focus on how we're kind of having these conversations with boys and socialising them. Something that I find really interesting in this is in Australia, if you are a woman, you are more likely to be sexually assaulted or raped than you are to smoke cigarettes. And that is because of, you know, large-scale public education around the health risks of cigarettes. Yeah taxes, resource allocation, it is because of every time you leave the house and you're going to a party, don't smoke, don't drink, you know, don't do drugs, whatever. Like, that's where you get yelled out the door when you're 15 walking out. Are you walking out the door yelling, make sure you check for consent? You know, like, it's, I think a lot of parents will probably be more worried that their kids are smoking cigs than thinking about sexual violence. And it's, yeah, it's really scary. I don't think it should be difficult to talk about not wanting the young men in our community to go on to perpetrate. Mm. I think it's important that we do talk about that. Um, it, it, as you mentioned, yet it is we do focus a lot on trying to prevent people becoming victims. Mm. But a, that young man is going to destroy his life just as much, you know? Well, yeah, and I think the thing is, is tangibly this idea of, like, destroying someone's life. Like, does sexually assaulting someone guarantee that you will lose your job, end up in prison, like, have any sort of accountability? Definitely not. No. Which is a problem, but... So a large part of my book is actually about this idea of kind of mainly teenage boys or young adults who perpetrate sexual violence out of ignorance, entitlement and a lack of awareness about or a lack of care for consent rather than any sort of like intent or malice. And I feel deeply for these boys who do these things because they often grow up and realise what they've done is wrong and regret it and feel very like a lot of shame and guilt around the act. And preventing that is just as important, like it is just as much as an injustice on the boys in our community as the girls that our education system in the broadest sense of public education, parental education, teacher education, school system, that the main demographic in Australia of perpetrators of rape is a 15 to 19-year-old male. Oh, my God. Which, again, talks about how early we need to be having these conversations. And it's not that, like, the it's like the conversation around stranger danger mm. is complete bullshit. Absolute bullshit. It's... It is a family member mm. who will generally be, if it's an adult and quite small child. Well, yeah, that's in terms of, yeah, childhood sexual abuse yeah, yeah. for sure. But I also think in terms of something I didn't actually realise until I actually launched the campaign is this type of sexual violence that I talk about so specifically, this kind of like teen on teen perpetrated right. out of, you know, lack of education, ignorance, blah, blah, blah. That is child sexual abuse being perpetrated by another child. And I don't think we kind of grapple with what that actually means when we're looking at this from a bigger picture and what that also means for accountability and stuff like that. Like, I don't think the criminal system is any place for children, regardless of crime. So how are we going to mesh those things together and mm. figure out a way of moving forward when, one, it's so preventable, and two, it's such a kind of complex, intricate issue that I think needs to be seen as different to 
child sexual abuse perpetrated by adults yeah. and, you know, adult on adult sexual assault. Oh, again, I was just trying to, I guess, draw a, 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 an analogue to that we're looking in the wrong place. Yes, essentially, Because we, you know, we, we, oh, you know, I've got to go and pick up my kid from school because they might get snatched. No. No, they fucking won't. Yeah. It, they, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's somebody they already know if it's going to, like, but that's the thing. The focus was always on that. You you mentioned three things that I'm kind of fascinated by mm. uh, as the reasons why young men uh, find themselves in this situation. And I'd love if we could unpack them a little bit. Talk to me about the ignorance part. How, how What are conversations we could have with the young guys in our lives a, a, that could alleviate that? Well, I think the thing is exactly what you're saying. We have these very strict stereotypes of what sexual assault looks like and what we think it's going to be. It's the, you know... It's the scary man in the alleyway when you're walking home at night. We don't realise that it's, you know, much more likely a guy you have a crush on and who you're, you know, consensually kissing at the beginning of the night but don't want to be doing anything else with at the end of the night. And those stereotypes, I think, allow young people to perpetrate acts of sexual violence without being conscious of it. And those acts don't just, like, come out of nowhere. They're not just, you know, exhibited. There's attitudes and expectations around boys and girls and the way they should experience life and do life that sets up very robust structures for those more insidious acts of sexual harassment and sexual assault to then occur. You know, it starts with a sexist joke. It starts with misogynistic attitudes. It leads to groping. It leads to flashing in the street. It leads to image-based abuse. And then it leads to rape. And the normalisation of those kind of like lower levels that are seen as you know, less explicit or less insidious forms of sexual violence allow those higher ones to occur and allow them to be classified as normal. And I think that's where the ignorance comes in. So, you know, for example, when I got my consent talk when I was 15 years old, the things that kind of like blew my mind were finding out that one, um, oral sex encounters rape. Two, someone that you know or like like or love, like, you know, your boyfriend can be the perpetrator of sexual violence and just because you're dating someone doesn't mean that consent is automatic. And three, that intoxication makes consent void. And also, finally, that consent was needed in a sexual act for it to not count as a form of sexual assault or sexual violence. And I think the ignorance of that means that the weight of a lot of young boys' actions isn't often completely understood. I think that's a serious tragedy because, again, that's what I mean. People grow up, learn, reflect, and then have to sit in that shame or guilt if they feel like it. Not that all do, but yeah. <laughs> it is it is really quite difficult. And I'm, I mean, I don't think you have any reason to believe it isn't, but I, I remember being a young guy. I'm one of four boys, one of four brothers. I went to an all-boys school. The only woman that wasn't my mum was my accounting teacher and one music teacher. I only knew this world. I only knew that, you know, to be punched really hard in the arm is a way of saying hello. I fucking hated that, but that's what <laughs> it was. I didn't feel in place at all, but I, to fit in that stuff, you know, behaviours like that start to show up so you can be, to fit in, in in that kind of, you know, we talk about peer pressure, but I don't think that's really it. It's not about, you know, doing nangs at the park because of peer pressure. It's like... <laughs> it's, it's like the cultural norms. Yeah, there you yeah. go. That's it. And how that sort of stuff can start and boy it starts early oh my god it starts unbelievably early it starts from before we're even conscious of it i mean there's studies showing that 
if you dress newborn babies in like pink or blue, the way that parents who don't know the babies or strangers interact with them is like wildly different depending on if they assume they're a boy or they're a girl. So those kind of like cultural contexts are set before we can even like fathom that they're being set. Right. If you're the parent of young men, how do you how do you how do you talk to them about if you start to see their let's just say their standards slipping from what it is you raise them to be? It's often not surprising when, you know, you hear an allegation or, you know, someone tells you something or discloses something. It's often not surprising where that, ca- like, that that came from there. So it's like, well, what were all the signs that made it not surprising to us and how could we have stopped them at that point and, like, changed the culture? And I think if you're a parent of a young boy, looking at that is really important. So, I mean, you know, the mantra, boys will be boys, is, you know, here, there and everywhere. And it's such an excuse for kind of whether it's destructive behaviour or, like, punching each other in the arm like that's the most classic like boys we boys like why are you guys punching each other in the arm I don't know because they want to do it like whatever it's not necessarily like maybe overtly harming anyone as such but it's also not the most you know appropriate way to greet someone so thinking about how those kind of like small actions can be held to account and also how you can take every opportunity you get to have these sort of conversations. So, you know, maybe you're watching a movie and there's a sex scene that comes up. You know, everyone's been there when a sex scene's up with your parents and you're mortified and embarrassed and you just, like, pretend not to look, blah, blah, blah. Does the sex scene scene show consent? Almost definitely not. Take that opportunity to be like, mm, this is not real because you should always do this. Or, you know, is are you watching a rom-com from the 2000s and is the guy, you know, obsessively chasing the girl and refusing to take no for an answer and following her everywhere and calling her phone. But like, actually, that's kind of stalking. Yeah, yeah. Like, these things aren't okay. And you're just in the most lighthearted way. You can kind of bring these things up and, like, correct the media that's being consumed from, like, so many other angles to say yeah. that's actually not how healthy yeah. relationships Every work. Every Twilight movie ever. I know. Oh, my God. I was literally watching Twilight with my friends the other day. <laughs> and my friend Bella, like, turned around to me and she was literally like, Chanel, you need to do a PhD about consent in Twilight. <laughs> and I was literally like... She was joking. We were talking about, she was doing her PhD and we were joking about how much content there is. And she was like, you could literally write a thesis on this. But like, like, <laughs> what's her name? He says to her, I want to kill you every second of the day. And she says, oh, I'm so in love. <laughs> and I mean, he even, he forces her. He's like, I'm not, you know, we can't do this unless we get married. And like, I'm not going to do this. And like, like, there's so much coercion in there. And there's it's, a power imbalance. He's like 107 or something. And she's like 19. Half your age plus seven doesn't come near it. No, no, it's not. It doesn't meet the rule. <laughs> it's very, I mean, I mean, look, you know, they're teenage vampires. And so we know it's not real, I know. but it's a very odd I mean, it also set the scene for like what so many like girls in my generation think is romantic and stuff like that. And it's also really interesting the types of romance that like women are shown in the media is often this very overbearing, like coercive, protective, like jealous Mm. type of man. Like a lot of the movies we grew up with kind of depicted that trope. Yeah. Which is not necessarily healthy in any way, shape, or form. No. I mean, I was even thinking about the other day, like, School texts, how English texts, the amount of times we could have had these conversations there. Romeo and Juliet, he's 16, she's 13. Not great. Power, like a few years of that age makes a massive difference. There's a serious power balance there. Let's talk about it. Like, I don't know, atonement. We did atonement for our year 11 text. It's literally about a, like a rape, and that was fine, but apparently it wasn't okay to talk to us about sexual 
consent in our own lives. And so there's so many options here and opportunities where you could just address these things consistently. When it comes to uh, um, being a young man and, and those things being normalised and, you know, when you're pretty young, I remember being really young, at first it was drawing. You know, mm. before there was memes, it was like drawing pictures, you know, <laughs> and like that stuff being normalised and we're trying to outdo each other with how extreme it got. And like it was, I remember it being kind of playful. And then as, you know, puberty kicked in for all of us and our voices changed and we got bigger, then it, now it's kind of a bit more kind of guess real. Um, now that would all take place on a group chat and mm. you would want to outdo each other all the time. How do you say to a young guy in a group chat with all the people he sees, not only like he's in the group chat before he gets to school, and he's in the, you know, with them face to face at school, and he's with the group chat until he puts his phone down at night. How do you say to a guy like that, "Hey, you're gonna have to call that out, buddy"? Like, mm. how does that happen? Well, I mean, I honestly think in that like very specific situation, there's so much power in boys a few years older having these sort of conversations. Like the boys who, you know, maybe do these things in year eight, and now they're in year twelve and they regret it, or maybe they're in year mm. twelve and they never did it, but they're glad they did it. And having those conversations and kind of seeing your peers or like your peers who are a bit older who you respect because you know when you're young someone a few years above you at school is like so scary and so cool and like you know mm. their words god telling you these sort of things because i think it is really and the thing is i there's always going to be so many bystanders in a situation and it sounds so cliche but the thing is if someone calls it out there's probably about 10 20 people in that group chat who feel relieved that it got called out there's only a few who would feel mm kind of insult, insulted by it. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, when we were doing a teacher's consent strategy the other day, we were literally like, we just need to make consent cool. Like, how do we make teenage boys want to be consensual? Like, mm. how do we show to them that it's really cool to have a healthy, loving, intimate relationship where you still have sex, but because she wants to and because you want to and for, like, good reasons? Um, well, I think this is where the vast quantities of... Uh, complete fantasy-based porn come into play here because mm. it's never, you never see it. Mm. And you, you never see it. And that is, I mean, it is not the default sex education. It is sex education. Yeah, it's the main form of sex education. And it's the most, like, it's unbelievably explicit how we're meant to counteract that. And most mainstream pornography depicts violence against women. And in almost all of those cases, they're either being passive or, you know, happy about that which means that pornography is also massively victimising girls because it's also their form of sex education and what they think this sort of situation is supposed to be like. Yeah, it's really terrifying. That's why, again, it's going to be so hard to kind of measure if consent education is going to do anything because at the same time, you know, pornography is only getting more explicit, people are accessing it younger, it's getting more real, people are getting VR headsets, like all these sort of things that are distorting reality of the sexual landscape for young people. With kind of mainstream porn, there's the kind of, I guess, implicit idea that someone there is getting paid, mm. right? When you come to something like OnlyFans, which is this, you know, the narrative is like, I'm an independent creator, this is me, this is my job, work is work. Um, how does that play into this narrative? Oh, it's tough. It is really tough. I, I just want to quickly separate the idea of an individual porn actor from the industry because it is really hard to consolidate idea that some individual people and women find pornography, you know, empowering and they would rather do that than other forms of work. 
whilst at the same time it is an industry that is disproportionately exploitative towards women and children as well. So as a feminist, looking at that, it's kind of this tension between something that like benefits an individual will be at odds with the collective in this sense. And for me, I'm coming at it with a lens of I don't know how we can ever tell if someone's consented to being there. There's no way to tell if someone's had an agent read over their contract and, yeah. you know, they're getting paid a fair wage and they've agreed to what they're doing before and, you know, consent's being given versus someone who's been human trafficked into the, you know, industry. That's something that I, as a, you know, personal consumer, which is why I don't watch pornography, I do not consume pornography. It's like that's my ethics base. I'm not judging people who do. Just same as, like, you know, some people are vegetarian. I personally eat meat. But, um... Yeah, and then OnlyFans is an interesting one because I understand it was kind of created for this idea of trying to fix that issue and being like, okay, well, you know that you know they're getting paid and they're making their own content and blah, 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 blah. But if OnlyFans was an economy, it would be the most unequal economy in the world. The amount of money that the top income earners earn is astronomical, but the vast majority of people on the... Um, platform earn pretty much nothing, and there's a massive disparity. Oh, in that. so, so kind of like every the, the idea that uh, the the one percent of the world you could fit inside a, exactly. a greyhound bus. Yeah, it's like, and then there's everybody else. Exactly. So yeah. it's more unequal than any country we have in the world. Wow. Okay. So there's you know South Africa where you know millions live in poverty, and then there's also squillionaires, right? And it's more unequal than that. And by saying that, you're saying like, so people get into that looking to be the aspirational yeah. thing, but find themselves as the, one of the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Statistically, but then also those kind of like one percenters, like, you know, the Annapols, the Stellabaris, whatever, they're platforms, they have social media, they encourage it. They kind of, they promote this lifestyle that, you know, I personally follow both of them on TikTok and Instagram and absolutely love them. And I think they're really funny. And, you know, they post their hot takes and like they have this lifestyle that sounds like incredible, obviously, but that's not the reality of sex work for most people around the globe yeah. or even people in only the fans. Like we yeah. have to think about, you know, street sex workers and understand the differences between that. So yeah, it's a roundabout way of saying it's very complicated. And yeah. again, I'm not saying that if I, this is not an individual person's like issue or like it's nothing to do with them. Like if an individual sex worker wants to do that work, then that's mm. fine. But on a separate issue, we need to understand that the industry as a whole is something that is disproportionately exploitative towards women. I mean, even just the simple fact that watching anything on Pornhub, no matter how, you know, even if it's kind of like a quote unquote, like ethical porn video, like if consent's being shown or, you know, whatever, watching anything on that platform is giving profit to a company that time and time again has hosted child sexual abuse material. So for me in the work I do, it's just like an absolute no-go just because it's not worth the risk yeah. of what I think, like what I believe in and what I want to contribute to as a consumer. We've talked about the risks of if you're going into a, you know, becoming a sexually active person uh, with using porn as your main, I guess, model mm. of how it works. Uh, not great. Uh, <laughs> not, you may discover things that you think that looks fun, but how you navigate a situation to get to be with someone that you trust enough to do that. Mm. That's another story. Uh, I'm married. This is my second marriage. There was a period in the middle there. It was about three years of just 
awfulness. And in the middle of that, there was about 13 months where I was on Tinder, which had only just been invented. Nice. And uh, this was... An OG. <laughs> oh, oh, mate, yeah. It literally had just, just started. And it was fucking horrible. It was a vacuous hellhole of just, just the worst of everything. Because men would go on that app when they were horny and women would go on that app when they were lonely. And mm. you would just get this complete thing. And, like, that's just in the straight world. There's gay mates of mine who... You know, before even smartphones, mate, the homosexual, they're on board. They had this stuff lined right up and we were still on dial-up internet. But it's just it's just holes. It's just cocks and holes. You don't see a face. Mm. You don't see a smile. The dehumanising effect of, of that has got to play a role in consent and, and lack of consent when it comes to actually being physically in the room with somebody. Yeah, I think it's really hard. I mean, I think the idea of, you know, judging someone's personality off five photos or, you know, a photo of their dick or something. Is Holding obviously. a fish <laughs> yeah. and a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the same time. Um, I'm sure that exists somewhere. I'm sure, yeah. It's tiger, fish, ten blokes. Uh, which one? <laughs> yeah, which one are you? Yeah. You. Uh, no. I think that... I think that dating apps have become much more kind of like normalized now. Whereas I think they, when they came out, they very much had a reputation of being like, this is like Tinder, at least when I was younger, when it first came out, it was very much like, this is like to get laid. Like, this is like to do this. And I think that kind of has evolved. Where I think most people now use dating apps in one shape or form, but we definitely can't dismiss how like this idea of there's like always someone better who could just be a swipe away can kind of change our mindset around like commitment and intimacy and like self-worth as well, knowing that how just like it does create a narrative of disposability. I think that's not necessarily always true. I've, I know some people who have met, you know, partners on dating apps, gotten married to them. They're so happy. Like it's obviously an incredible tool for connecting people in a world that, you know, where we've become increasingly less social in the real world. But I think this idea of the kind of like objectification of a person and even taking it off dating apps just to social media in general like some of the you know images that like young boys engage in and see or like what's normal and I think that all definitely does come into play and it comes into play in a way that we need to toe that line between how do we ensure that women are free to you know wear whatever they want post whatever they want all those things do whatever they want without being subjected to unwanted attention or harassment as, like, in retaliation of that. And it's a very hard line to toe in a world that has consistently told all people that doing those sort of things is a, you know, is trying to attract that sort of attention when it's actually not the case a lot of the time. Like, you know, it's always you always see on, like, TikTok or, like, memes and stuff like that, people being like, I'm not dressing up for boys, like, I'm dressing up for the girls, like, I'm dressing up for me. Like, as if I would dress up for, you You guys don't even care, like, stuff like that. And it's, like, how do we get rid of that idea that someone's clothes can be consent or an invitation? We have had this kind of massive sexual revolution and, like, apparently the liberation of sexuality, especially for kind of women or anyone, anyone who's basically not a straight man as well, like... And straight white man. It's right, yeah. And in that process, kind of like in the era of Playboy and when the contraceptive pill got created, which changed the way that men and women could like biologically engage in sex and how often they could and the risks associated with it were heavily lowered um, of unwanted pregnancy. And 
that has been accelerated really fast because ultimately the sexual liberation of women benefits men. However, the gender equality movement has not caught up with that sexual liberation, which means that it hasn't actually been true liberation. It's We've just kind of like created more women for men to have sex with and like normalise that in a way. And looking at it from kind of like an economic perspective, if you kind of think about like supply and demand, we get into a position where not only just because of like power structures and like gendered norms and stuff like that, but also literally just because of like simply the amount of people. So for example, this also goes into this in my book. In the university context, there are in um, most, you know, high income countries in the world, there are now more women in university students than male university students. And I know I'm speaking in a very heteronormative framework right now, but just to like simplify the conversation. And in terms of kind of like competing from partners, again, speaking in an economic sense, this idea of like basic principles of supply and demand, women need to lower their expectations and their standards of how they are treated in order to even compete in the sexual market if they want to be involved in it at all because there is just another person there for someone that they may be interested in to like go to Mm. and I feel like yeah also (laughs) interesting in the context of yeah what you do when you're not on this podcast (laughs) like those sort of environments of like dating has become like a form of competition almost and it is like a sexual economy yeah I would, I would, particularly in this, this season that is yet to air, I, I certainly hope some of those conversations end up in the final cut. Women who are in their early 30s, you know, mm. just talking about like the relationships that they're in. Um, and bear in mind, this might not make the edit. So uh, <laughs> depending on what story they choose to go with, because yeah. you're shooting a lot of footage for one hour show, the depth of the relationships that they're experiencing, and they're old enough to know what it was like to have a deep, loving, vulnerable connection with somebody, the depth of relationships they're experiencing in the dating world are just people like, oh, it's Saturday night and uh, look, I've got I've got to go. I've got an early start tomorrow. Like, really? It's mm. 9.30? No, you're meeting someone after this. Mm. Fuck off. Come off it. Yeah. Uh, but that happens on, look, that, that can happen on both fronts because there's always, oh, he's not quite six foot enough. Yeah. He might be a little more six foot. There might be a bit more of a finance bro one swipe away and so mm. never really competing but I it's kind of wanted to get to this point in that the approach the way to speak to someone is becoming a fucking lost art mm. to actually make an initial hey how you going it's almost easier to slide into a dm or put a like on a photo Definitely. and then comment and then where are you and then now I'll come and say hello wherever you might be at a party or I've seen you on Instagram, I liked your photo a few weeks before and now here we are in the same space. Um, What does it do for us if we, you know, don't have those kind of, that skill set of what it is to kind of front up and say, hey. It's so hard, isn't it? Because it's kind of like an everyone problem and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing because, again, like so many people have been connected through this form of technology mm. and you meet people, you know, yeah. outside of your social circle, yeah. people you would never usually engage with or, you know, someone liking your Instagram story, you know, when it's a photo of yourself or something like that, that is basically like a, hey, how are you going at a party? 
But yeah, it is really sad, the idea that we've kind of lost that. Like if someone kind of comes and speaks to you in public, one, I think a lot of people are scared to do that. And then two, I think a lot of people are almost like off put, like being like, why are you doing this? You're a stranger. Are you weird? Like this is going to be a stranger danger almost. Um, Well, they're they're safer if a stranger shows up in a DM. (laughs) Yeah, because you can check them out. You can see your mutual friends, like you can whatever. But I mean, it's even like buses and stuff like that. Like when I used to go to school on the bus, we would all just be on our phones pretty much. Whereas... Like when my dad used to go to school on the bus, and my mum used to go to school, like they would talk I'm, to each other. I met the woman. The, she's a woman now, but we were, you know, we were seventeen at the time. Mm-hmm. The woman I lost my virginity to, I met her on the bus. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you chat and you speak and yeah. you speak to a random. Whereas, like when we used to catch the bus, there would be people on it and you know who they are. But yeah, you'd follow them on Instagram or Facebook in those days. Add them on Facebook, and that meant that the next day you could be like, hey. Right. And like, so it's kind of I don't know. It's just like that's. Just, I think that's just changed forever the way we kind of. How does that play into, how does that inability to have even that kind of, because it's an emotional connection moment mm-hmm. to say to someone, look them in the eye and say, hey, how you going? How does that play when it comes to the con- consent conversation? If we're starting to lack skills with actually just speaking to each other that isn't a text, mm. where does that come into the con- consent conversation? I mean, I guess in a few ways. I mean, I guess it means that we're losing the skill to kind of read body language and like ah. understand if someone wants to like wants to speak to you or not because you know someone might say hey to you you might be like hey and someone might say hey to you might be like hi and like the difference between that you probably couldn't hear it through the audio but you know that's something you can see it's very clear don't and it? also in that the idea that you only kind of approach new people for the purpose of romantic or sexual encounters that is also quite sad and creepy because why aren't you just like you can also make friends on the bus like you know I've also made lots of friends on the bus when I used to catch the bus to school all the time whatever girls in other schools girls in your above like boys in other schools whatever but if it's become that you only like someone's Instagram story if you're trying to kind of like you know do a sneaky whatever what does that mean for the way that we're telling people to interact with the kind of like gender that they're interested in and the fact that you can't just have social interaction for the purpose of friendship as well. The the body language thing is a really interesting skill set to develop. Mm. You know, I see it in in both our kids, but I, I got to see it with Wolf from the start in that they don't know, so they look to you. You see their eyes come to you to see how to react to a situation and they mm. learn and then they, they copy. Mm. The shittest thing about being a parent is they don't do what you tell them, <laughs> they do what you show them and you fucking find out pretty quick that, oh, no, I'm I should sort that out. I just, <laughs> I just saw a three-year-old do a thing I hate about myself. Okay. Uh, but the idea that you know, learning that when I say something, I mean, he's four right now, mm. and so he's learning that if he says something kind of mean to somebody, it feels shitty inside him too. He mm. makes that person cry. Not that he is a mean kid, but like at the age of four, I don't yeah, want to throw him under the bus. Yeah. I don't want to throw him under the bus. Like, <laughs> but it's it's when we're young, we learn when I say something mean to another person. Mm. They might get upset, but then I also feel kind of icky in my body and I learn yeah. maybe it's not nice to go around being mean to people because I don't like it either. It feels awful. I remember the first time I punched a kid who was being a proper bully to me, I cried. <laughs> I was 14. Yeah. And I'm in the middle of my old boys school playground and I cry- I'm crying because I felt so horrible that I punched this kid. Mm. He never touched me again, but it was <laughs> awful. It was awful, you know. Mm. So to deprive ourselves of learning that, Mm. And learning those moments, learning micro-expressions, learning what hands, shapes, learning body language, learning mm. closed-up body positions, open body positions, 
That, that's, I mean, that's a big thing, like closed body positions, open, like tense, calm, because mm. most consent is inferred from body language. It's actually like less often explicitly words. It's much more, you know, a kind of like vibe and enthusiasm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really feel bad for the kids who are kind of like, you know, like 14, 15, 16 around the COVID years who lost those like very formative years of social interaction in the school system and like very much were isolated at home, you know, probably consuming like copious amounts of pornography and how that's changed. So the average age of um, sexual intercourse for men in the UK is increasing, like young men, because they are kind of getting their form of intimacy, which is not real intimacy and also has extreme like health and like psychological um, risk to it as well, is from pornography rather than kind of like human to human connection. And that's really sad. Yeah. So I saw the amount of uh, single people is increasing. Because you know you can get off by yourself in, in ways hitherto never before invented, in the most extraordinary USB-powered Bluetooth you know <laughs> machines invented, and there's this transactional nature of sex that you don't essentially necessarily have to pay for. So you're mm. not going to a sex worker. But I was quite shocked the first time that you know I, I went on a, a Tinder date and um, you know and I thought I'd, you know. I'm, do the right thing and I've just been sober for about three years so I wanted to have a very different relationship to sex and sexuality as a sober person and you know I remember this woman was older than me and I remember buying her dinner and whatever and she's like so what are we going to fuck and I was just like so taken aback she was 38 and I was like I'd ne- that never she's like I'm not here to eat dinner and I was like oh, uh, now <laughs> <laughs> God, I can't believe that. I feel like, I I don't know, maybe that's still the case of some things, but I feel like that's definitely changed. I feel like, again, Tinder in its inception was kind of like known for that, whereas I feel like now it's a bit more This is 2013. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So this is 10 years ago. I I don't don't know. I was at school then. (laughs) I was far off Tinder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, was what, 39? Yeah. Yeah. I was 39. It was before I met Audrey. And I just remember being so like, I feel really weird. Well, that is confronting. And I think that also talks to this kind of, idea that like men are supposed to always be down for sex and like that they always want it and that's you know the only reason you were there that she's kind of like falsely assuming that yeah whereas that also like contributes to a culture where there's no room for intimacy whether that's expected of men therefore they act in that way to meet those sort of expectations yeah as someone who used to drink i there's a very big difference between having sex when you're when you're drinking and when you're not drinking Mm. uh in the way that your brain works and the way that the dopamine systems and things work. But I, I definitely remember when I just recall it speaking to you now, feeling so weird without having that any kind of personal connection mm. there. And I know that sounds quite wild mm. uh, for, you know, because, you know, we're often told that, you know, for a woman to be ready for sex, there has to be an emotional moment uh, involved in the oxytocin release to allow parts of their body to create the environment for sex to occur, unless there's lots of lube around. Um, <laughs> but that is also the case for men. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Why wouldn't it be? Uh, and there's bits of your body that just don't work if mm. if that isn't there uh, in, in some case. Certainly was for me when I was a young man. Yeah. Um, and it just really freaking blew my mind. Um, yeah. It's actually so funny. I am thinking, I don't think I've ever had sex drunk because I didn't I don't think I could have sex drunk right because I don't think I could have that level of presence and emotional intimacy yeah. that I desire out of yeah yeah that which is really interesting yeah it's um 
you know, it, it's odd the 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 way that I grew up and how I grew up and who I grew grew up with. And I bear in mind, I left this school uh, seventeen, and I within six months I was working for a bunch of like road warrior kind of cover band before DJ. So were things called cover bands. <laughs> I was the youngest. There was next guy older than me was ten years older than me. He's twenty seven. I was seventeen. Mm. No, I was just eighteen. So he was twenty eight, and I was eighteen. And some of them were quite a bit older. And the relation, the, the way that they spoke about women, the, mm. you know, I wanted to fit in. It was like you know, unhealthy masculinity. I'm not a fan of the word of of calling him masculinity toxic because. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is a very helpful way to describe things. There's healthy and unhealthy masculinity because if you're talking about toxic masculinity, well, what's the option, you know? But if we talk about healthy or unhealthy... We can, we can go into that if you want. I'd love <laughs> but, to. Yeah. I'd love to because <laughs> yeah. uh, I know we've been focusing a lot on on men and young boys in this yeah. conversation, but I think it's really, really important because as a young man, like, where are you going to go? Mm. And you talked about being on the bus before and, like, not wanting to initiate a conversation. Yet when you're really... I can, I, you know, from my own uh, experience being so reluctant to speak to anybody new mm. yet when I looked at this particular person, there was just gigantic hormonal rage in my body <laughs> that gave me the effort to go, Oh, I will go and speak to her because <laughs> this feels good. And it, it definitely was that I hadn't yet figured out that women could be friends. Mm. Uh, I, you know, didn't know that was a thing. And so that was the, that was a big part of me having that conversation as a 17-year-old, I think I met her when I was 16 and then yeah. we up together at 17. And to be a young man just fucking raging with hormones, <laughs> I remember being like you can put on 15 kilos in, in, in six months and, and suddenly you can go from being like this kind of dweeby person before summer and then you wake up one morning and then suddenly you can literally just walk through a wall. You yeah. just like, like become the Hulk. You become super powered. And God, it sounds so weird. It is. I it's really strange. That. Yeah. But it is it's really strange. I know strange. exactly what you mean because sometimes, you know, I don't see my friend's younger siblings for a few months and I'm like, what the hell? Or hey, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then like. 180 and we're 100 kilos yeah. of meat. Yeah. And, but they're still, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, and they're yeah. just literally driving a bulldozer with the the brain power of a, of a 15 year old. And also like in 10 years, again, like hormonally or like in order to kind of take more risks and also break away from our parents in those adolescent years, we also usually feel less empathy in those, those time periods of our yeah. life. Yeah. Which is, you know, encourages us to take risks and do things and learn and have these moments of punching someone and being like, that felt really bad. Mm. But, you know, not having enough to like to do it in the first place, but then be like, oh, wait, and like figure out that yeah. journey. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you're a teenager, everyone's always like, oh, like being a teenager is so hard. And you're always like, shut up. But like when you look back on it, you're like, God, I'm glad that's over. Just a moment away from Chanel Contos to say that her book is called Consent Laid Bare. It's out right now. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have a brand new Instagram handle, OG Better Than Yesterday is uh, where we are. If you want to help this show, one thing that you could really do that costs you no money at all, no money at all, just tell someone, text someone, share it with someone, find a little post that we did on the new Instagram, OG Better Than Yesterday, share it with someone there. Uh, also like and rate and comment, subscribe, follow wherever you can, share the show however you can. It really, really helps. Every new listener you send away is bucks. All right? So you don't have to send us bucks. Just send us new people. That gives us bucks. Their bucks. 
Hey, it's good. Back in a moment with Chanel Contos. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Empathy is a really important thing. How, how would you speak to uh, a young woman or a young man who, uh, as you mentioned, the teen-on-teen teen situation is, mm. is the thing you kind of your work focuses on. How would you speak to a young man who's the concept of empathy for uh, a woman, a stranger that he hasn't met yet or mm. one he's got the hots for on Instagram? Um, what, what do you, how do you speak to them about that? So also just to kind of like contextualise this, the pretty much like premise of like all the work I do and also the whole book is this idea of this type of sexual assault occurs when entitlement outweighs empathy so entitlement to someone else's body outweighs your empathy towards them as a human and we only need to flip that up a little bit we only need to be a little bit more empathetic to people to make it that sexual assault would just be an anomaly and something that would be really strange to do but the whole point is it becomes normalized because of this entitlement and I think the thing is people think, like, oh, it's so hard to teach empathy, but it's actually not because, one, humans are inherently empathetic. It's an anomaly if someone is not empathetic. That means they have some sort of personality disorder. And two, we're extremely good at embedding empathy in our girls. We just fail to do it without boys. And the thing is we tend to socialise empathy in boys very well about the kind of people, like, immediately around them. But what we fail to do is to extend that reach. And that's not just talking about women. We're also, I'm also talking about, you know, all forms of marginalised identities, whether it's, like, queer people or whether it's, like, refugees or, like, you know, people of a different race, like, people of a different class, like, all these different things. And it can literally be as simple as, like, reading them bedtime stories when they're four years old about these other different types of characters that aren't in their direct realm. You know, we spoke about growing up in Sydney's eastern suburbs. It's a very elite place in terms of class in terms of race it's extremely exclusive there is only a very specific dynamic that you kind of sorry demographic that you tend to kind of like engage with unless you make active strides to get outside of that and a lot of Australia is kind of like segregated in those different ways and we have really high amounts of single-sex education institutions in Australia which again you're only around you said it before as well you're around your brothers and besides your mom and you're like few teachers there weren't women around so how do we extend that empathy and teach people to feel it beyond the people that are only relevant to them and I think storytelling engaging taking the time to kind of like I mean it seems almost so obvious to say but yeah like put yourself in their shoes like think about how would they feel about that 
and from a really young age doing that with storybooks and then when they're maybe older doing it with things that appear on TV or movies or getting them to watch movies from different cultures or have conversations or like a movie that highlights the experience of womanhood or things like that or a documentary and then also just like media and news articles like literally every day we're blasted with this sort of information taking the time to be like let's read this more than just a headline what does this actually mean for the people that this headline is about yeah, the reporting of the Higgins trials. Like, she was never on trial, motherfuckers. Exactly. You know? <laughs> the language. She was never on trial. Uh, how can you come? Because it can get pretty welded on, particularly in all-male cohorts, particularly when there is a huge value placed on on that kind of blokey, um, punchy kind of lack of empathy, women as objects mm. thing. I knew someone who, they're an actor, and one of the jobs she had a long time ago was she was working for a a, um, a large sporting league. And the job was uh, to go into essentially daytime team meetings of the team, either first grade or junior teams, and she would read out victim impact statements mm-hmm. in character to try and, like, talk to the man in the room about mm. this is someone speaking about having been a victim of an, of an assault. Mm. And um, the person leading this particular day said, you know, well, you know, what do you think about that to one of the guys in the room? And would you want that to happen to your sister? No. Nah. Well, what about her? Well, she's just some slut. Like that, that seems pretty fucking rusted on. So how do you even get... How do you even combat that? How do you even approach that? Well, that means that man can only feel empathy for people directly related to them, which again is often like heavily socialized into boys and men. And I mean, I've had a chat with Jenny and the girls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he got absolutely like shat on for that, but that's how a lot of people and that was his experience though yeah that's what so many people think and feel and that's the only way that is actually again chapter sorry i don't mean to keep intentionally plugging this i guess you're here to plug a book you were dropped off by a publicist it's fine (laughs) um there's a chapter called his someone's son his someone's father his someone's brother and it's on the pretense of flipping the script of how so often we try to bring men along in the you know preventing violence against women movement or you know preventing male violence whatever you want to call it by trying to say like, oh, this could be your daughter or your sister or your mother. And people get very offended when it's that. But I don't understand how there's that disconnect between thinking whatever world I'm creating is how people are going to treat. Like the way I treat someone else's sister, someone else's mother, someone else's daughter is how people are going to treat mine. And um, yeah, I think a lot of fathers freak out and get very protective over their daughters when they realize that men are going to treat them the way that they treated women for a lot of their lives. And I think it can be really confronting. I mean, yeah, Kanye West, violent crimes. I know um, he's cancelled, but, like, the way he talks about Northwest saying, like, he doesn't want her to have curves like his mum. It's like, you literally married, like, the sex icon of our generation. And you're now worried that men are going to objectify your daughter. Like, what have you been doing for the last however many years on your music videos and your, like... Great songs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, as in, everyone thought that was such a weird song for him to make, to be like, oh my God, you're objectifying your daughter. And I'm literally like, isn't this what all, like, men and dads think? Like, they freak out that their daughters are going to be treated the way that they've treated women their whole life. I went through it with with Georgia, and it was 
really hard to subvert because it's this primal thing that you want to, but ultimately, Audrey speaking with Georgia about, you know, making sure she knew her value, knew her worth, mm. you know, was smart about things, but that changed who she is in a room, you know, and, and the way she spoke about the power dynamic and I can't remember the words, but it was extraordinary about not giving part of yourself away for the attention of somebody, essentially. And also I think on the other side of this, like I know we've spoken about boys and men a lot in their socialisation, but the way women are socialised is often to be over-accommodating of people, often to be people-pleasers, often to put your own self and your comfort second, which just creates this kind of like perfect environment for someone's boundaries to be very easily compromised and for them to like let it happen in inverted commas let it happen but they don't actually want it to happen and then it's a situation that's like okay well maybe it was still consent but it wasn't desired and like how do we kind of navigate that and yeah empowering young women teaching them how to say no like you know we always say no means no but we don't teach girls how to say it we teach them to feel really bad when they say it what can it sound like what can no sound like? I mean, it can be like, I don't feel like doing this. I don't like, you know, why don't we go back to the party? Like, why don't we just kiss for a bit? Can we just cuddle for a bit? But also, like I said, most consent is through body language. Like if someone has to kind of like explicitly give you a no, it kind of almost means you maybe have gone too far because it means you haven't picked up on those mm. cues that you're not interested. Because a lot of the time it is someone tensing. It is someone turning away. It is someone not being interested. And it should actually sound more like, are you okay? Are you comfortable? And like that kind of check in in an affirmative way. And give someone the space to be like, actually, let's just chill for a bit. Um, but I'm not just talking about in sexual situations. I'm talking about, you know, all situations, whether it's like doing extra tasks at work or like, you know, staying somewhere later, like going to a party you don't want to go to, just consistently failing to put your own true desires first. And I think that's like massively translated into the sexual landscape, especially when we have like so much taboo around female sexuality and... Um, what women experience and how they want to experience sex. Do you think we're going to be okay? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> I think we will be okay. I mean, I, ha I, I do have high hopes. Sometimes I'm so unbelievably disheartened, but the vast majority of sexual violence in Australia is preventable, especially sexual violence that occurs teen on teen, child on child. We can prevent that. I have absolutely no doubt that it is possible. We just need people to be willing to. And it means to sit in hard conversations. It means reflecting. It means, like, questioning biases. It means all these things that are, like, not necessarily easy to do. But it's 100% possible if people want to. It's just not being prioritised. And it's definitely easier than dealing with the consequences of... Sexual violence, sexual, sexual violence. assault, rape. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whether you're... Yeah, perpetrator or a victim, um, especially, you know, victim survivors, but it's fucking everywhere. Rape culture is fucking everywhere. <laughs> but it means we can get rid of it really quickly as well. There's always something to do. We can put something else out there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for writing the book. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, I actually think, again, I'm trying to shameless plug, but a lot of people have said this feels like a toolkit to start dismantling these sort of things and takes a look at the oh. normal. As I said to Yumi, I'll say to you, like, I wish that this conversation was so public when I was a teenager, mm. so much so. Yeah. Um, that's not to say anything except, but, oh, fuck. Yeah. Like, that 
I wish this was around. Yeah. I really do. Well, thank um, you for having me and having this conversation. <laughs> so that is Chanel Contos. Now, earlier, I, I wasn't blowing smoke, right? Do you see how earlier when I said, I reckon she's going to be PM? That makes sense now, right? She, she's a weapon. She's an absolute weapon. Unbelievable brain. Incredible way of communicating. She's doing some very, very important work. And and like I said to Yumi, who's written a book on consent as well, I, I really wish that kind of book was out when I was a young man. However, I'm glad that this work is being done now. We do have a lot of work to do with the young men in our lives, as you heard in that conversation. We can't passively sit back and just allow our community and our society to do the job of acclimating them to what it is to be a man in our community because we've seen where that goes if we go hands off. We have to be active. We have to do the work to protect the young men in our lives. We really do. I think if we can all do that, and we can, one at a time we can be okay. We really can. Thanks to everyone that made this show happen. Andy Ma, who did audio and video post-production. Abby Benno, who produced it. Toe Hyder, who made the music. And Ben Richardson uh, for helping me run the show. Find us on Instagram, OG Better Than Yesterday. That's where we are. I'll see you Wednesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 